Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, sitting in for Sean Spruce. Many of the roads, hiking trails, and even railroads that crisscross the landscape began thousands of years ago as trails used by indigenous hunters and traders. Many tribes have since lost their connections to those trails, but many are trying to reconnect their strong cultural links to the ancient roots and tell their own stories about what they mean. Stories of subsistence, business, and even trauma. We'll walk some of those trails on our show today right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The vice president of the Oglala Lakota Nation reacted to former President Donald Trump's visit to Rapid City, South Dakota on Friday by saying her tribe was not invited to a rally by the Republican Party featuring Trump and reflected on his time as president of the United States as difficult for Indian country. Vice President of the Oglala Sioux Tribe, Dr. Alicia Musso, told National Native News in Rapid City during an interview hours before the rally that she was not in tribal leadership during the Trump administration, but says it was hard working with the administration in her capacity, addressing youth issues with federal funding through the Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention. My previous work with the um, under an OJJDP grant, providing training and technical assistance for tribal communities was very difficult. We couldn't say certain words, including the word trauma. I was working for the National Native Children's Trauma Center at the time, so it was kind of hard not to say the word trauma, but we were censored. Um, and it's hard to do work when you're censored, do good work in our communities when you're censored from saying certain things. So it was, it was a little difficult, a little concerning. That was the experience that I had when that administration was in. Dr. Musso says she's not surprised South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem welcomed Trump to the state. The Oglala Sioux Tribe has had a rocky relationship with Nome, even telling the governor to keep off the Pine Ridge Reservation. The Oglala Sioux Tribe still has a banishment on Christy Nome that was from COVID when we had our borders up. And um, it, one of our banishments was taken back, but then another banishment was put on. It's been very difficult um, of the state of South Dakota understanding tribes and our sovereignty and us as a nation. Um, and the things that we have to deal with and also our, our status as a political entity. And so it's been kind of difficult considering ICWA and, and those types of issues that we face every day. It'd be very nice if the city of South Dakota understood those a little bit better. Trump's visit was part of fundraising for the state GOP, but many speculate it was also to boost his campaign for president. There was also talk in statewide and national media that Nome could likely play a part in his campaign or if he takes another term in office. Dr. Musso says if that's the case, she hopes Nome would understand tribes, especially coming from a state with nine tribal nations. The University of Alaska Board of Regents has unanimously approved a $53 million fundraising campaign for an Indigenous study center at its Fairbanks campus. The Alaska Beacon reports that Troth Yetta would be the first university space in the nation designed with Indigenous education models in mind. Troth Yetta in the Athabascan language means wild potatoes on a hill. Troth is also a word used for wild carrots. The root vegetables are a staple for interior Alaska natives. 
Charlene Stern, the university's vice chancellor for rural, community and native education, believes the new center could be a game changer for Alaska. She says it will help address both present day and historical inequities for Alaska's indigenous students. Currently, Alaska Native Studies courses are scattered across different campus buildings, but the center would bring them together under one roof. It will also be a home to the university's native language program, which has grown from three to 12 instructors. The University of Alaska Fairbanks is the only university in the world to offer bachelor's degrees in Yupik and Inupiaq. As of July, the university has raised $5.5 million for Troth Yetta. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sonoski Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sonoski Chambers Law. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, sitting in for Sean Spruce. Our indigenous ancestors traded, hunted, and traveled along paths and trails that connected them to resources or other communities. Some of those trails were forgotten over time. Others turned into the routes that are now roads, highways, and even railroads. Tribes are doing work to retrace and reclaim historical trails and tell their own stories. In recent, in recent years, the Ponca tribe has taken ownership and even helped develop a portion of a trail that now educates users on an important chapter in their story. The Mohican Nation in Wisconsin helps maintain a trail in Massachusetts used by their ancestors. And in New Mexico, an archaeologist is identifying barely visible hunting and trading trails used by Navajos generations ago. We'll talk more about what it takes to retrace historic trails and why it's important to reclaim the stories and history worn into them. You can, uh, what do you learn from walking along the same paths as your ancestors? What historic trails are still used in your native community? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Boston, Massachusetts, is Dr. Wade Campbell. He's an archaeologist and assistant professor at Boston University. And he's Dene. Welcome to Native America Calling, Wade. Yeah, Andy. Thank you. 
Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. So, um, as I mentioned in the intro, um, you're you're working on uh, kind of helping to retrace some old trails in uh, Navajo Nation, the eastern part, uh, Crown Point, New Mexico, which is where I'm from. Uh, can you tell me about uh, the, the work you were doing there uh, this summer? Yeah, sure. Um, so, for the first Let's see. For the first part of the year, um, in January, actually, when I was back home for uh, the winter break, I spent a little bit of time looking into the locations and history of, of um, work associated with these Navajo fortresses that are all across the reservation from Denetra, the area out by Farmington, um, all the way west to Black Mesa and potentially further. Um, and one of the things has been that these fortresses have been really uh, – kind of overlooked over the years. Um, and it turns out that there's actually quite a few on the reservation proper that haven't really been documented since the 50s. Um, and so by taking a look at them, we can get a much better sense of what the communities were doing in the 16, 17, 1800s when you know the area was a lot more kind of complex and, and a lot of the things that we deal with now weren't in place. You know, the U.S. wasn't really an, uh, an entity um, that had a lot of power yet. And so uh, what I was doing this summer was actually in Crown Point was following up and uh, working with uh, Leonard Perry, the Crown Point chapter vice president, a local historian, to re-identify some of these fortress sites, these Danet fortresses in the Crown Point area and to try to map them out, date them, and better understand what role they played during these periods in relation to you know, all these other activities that are going on in the area. Okay. And what do you mean by fortresses? They're fortresses. They're, they're, you know, the, the 17 1800s in the Four Corners was a time of, uh, honestly, a lot of complex uh, kind of political interactions between Deneff folks, Utes, Pueblos, uh, the New Mexican folks in the River Valley, and there was a lot of um, captive taking and, and mm. slave trading and, and stuff between. And so there's historically known to be a lot of raids um, back and forth um, across what is now the eastern part of the Navajo Nation. And so you find uh, stone strongholds on top of you know inaccessible or, or near inaccessible kind of pinnacles and walls blocking off areas where people can run to from, you know, Hogan's in the valley below. Okay, got it. All right, and uh, are there any interesting stories you learned from your research? Yeah, yeah. Well, so one of the things that's, you know, kind of key to point out is that, you know, one of the challenges in identifying trails is that they're, they're by definition, places where people kind of move through. And so there isn't often uh, a lot of stuff left except for the places where people are stopping. And these are these communities where people are moving in between. And there are, in some cases, Navajo oral traditions about these areas. And by actually going out and trying to re-identify them and looking at how they kind of relate, one of the things that stands out is that a lot of the ones in the Crown Point area, at least, um, and elsewhere on the res, uh, seem to correspond to historically known um, areas of, of movement through through the San Juan Basin, over the Chisco Mountains, and, and the like. So it's kind of, as you said in the intro, that you see this reinforcing itself again and again, and that 
these these fortresses are guarding families along these routes. Got it. And what will ultimately be done with uh, the trails once they've been identified, once we kind of know everything about the different fortresses and, and uh, the trails themselves? Well, that's a great question. Part of that is, I think, up to us as, as members of the larger Navajo community to, to think about how we want to take this. What are the stories we can tell? Are there ways to tie this into larger narratives? Um, you know, should these areas of transit be, um, you know, the tribes often have power to determine their own um, tribal historic properties. Uh, many tribes, their historic preservation offices have the ability to um, set aside areas or at least nominate areas as, as you know, particularly important. Um, and we tend to do that for natural areas, but it'd be interesting to consider that for, um, you know, these historic sites, these these cultural places as well. Yeah, it'd be um, yeah really interesting if uh, maybe we could end up taking a walk uh, on some of these trails and just kind of really uh, imagining what things were like long time ago. Um, that would be that would be really interesting, and that would be in my backyard in Crown Point, where where I'm from. And I know there's been some work with trails uh, just around the town of Crown Point trails that um, you know folks have already you know worn into uh, the community that connects different neighborhoods and folks use now for um, uh, walking and exercise you know the cross-country teams are running along these trails every year Um, so it's really exciting to kind of see that kind of um, maybe the same kind of work branch out into uh, all of these other you know lot older trails Um, so so tell me what it's like uh, out in the field? I mean, are you, uh, you know, pinning, you know, little flags in the ground or, you know, what does it take to kind of find these trails and and identify them? It takes a lot of sweat and a Uh. lot of scrambling. (laughs) Doing this work just reminds you how, how tough our ancestors were. A lot of these places, um, at least around the fortresses are really, they're, they're defensive sites. You know, you're scrambling up a slope, the stuff's rolling away. It's, it's, it's really tough. And in other areas, you know, the people are climbing up ladders and, and, and the like to, to get to the tops of mesas. So it can be pretty intense. Um, and when you realize that, you know, folks were out there, you know, riding horses or running or walking along them, you have a, a lot of respect for the way, um, you know, the, the lifestyle was back then definitely yeah. <laughs> it's definitely uh it's definitely tough right <laughs> um are there maybe any or you know why why is it important to um identify these trails now um yeah how, how did you get into this work you know growing up um growing up on the navajo nation i was always curious about navajo history um and it wasn't until the eighth grade that I actually, you know, had a formal class beyond what, you know, stuff was told in, in, in my family. And uh, I was honestly, I was left more curious uh, than when I went in at the end of it all. And it just kind of struck a chord. And as I've now spent the past couple decades chasing this, um, these sorts of questions, one of the things that stands out to me is that doing this sort of work, doing 
historical, archaeological, even like environmental work and that sort of thing. It's really important because it puts it puts us on the land in a way that I think is kind of otherwise hard to do in the 21st century. You know, our parents, grandparents and stuff were doing this because it was their lifestyle with ranching and farming and, and those sorts of things. But nowadays with wage work and education and stuff, the the opportunity to be out there sometimes feels really difficult and rare. And so doing this work, I think, is 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 you know, it's important because it gets you out there. It gets you in conversation with the land, with the stories that are, are embedded in it. And um, and then, you know, if it leads to these other projects that get other people out on there, uh, out on these trails, and I think it's it's doing a world of good. And I think you're seeing this with, you know, programs on our nation like Navajo Yes, the Crown Point Trail Building Project, um, this uh, the Silver Stallion Bike uh, Program based out of Gallup that has started uh, – getting kids not out on horses or chasing sheep, but on, on mountain bikes. And I think it's all part of that same tradition. Right, right. And uh, Navajo Yes is a, a, like a hiking trail group? Um, sort of. Navajo Yes is a, a community-oriented nonprofit that's focused on like outdoor experiences. Um, so uh, the, the, the Tour de Res that's been going for a few years, the mm. These these uh the races that happen around the Navajo Nation, uh, the Mountain Valley uh, Marathon, um, these sorts of things, uh, the Chuska Challenge bike race, uh, they're they're all sort of tied into that program in particular. Okay, got it. All right, cool. Um, that was uh, Dr. Wade Campbell over at uh, Boston University looking into trails uh, on the Navajo. Nation. Um, we'll be back after this break. We're talking about historical trails, reclaiming them, and uh, retracing them. The movement to reclaim native land has had some notable triumphs for tribes in recent years. Individuals, governments, and organizations are facilitating the transfer of land to tribal control. We'll look at some meaningful land back victories, both big and small, on the next Native America Calling. Did you know that there could be a silent killer inside your home? You may know it, carbon monoxide. It's a poisonous gas that can't be seen or smelled, yet it can kill a family in a matter of minutes. You can protect yours by installing carbon monoxide alarms throughout your home. Find more on the dangers of carbon monoxide and additional safety information at cpsc.gov. Support by the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Mandy Murphy, and we're talking about retracing and reclaiming historic trails today. Are you walking or hiking trails in your Native community that your ancestors used? Join us and tell us about it. We're at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us now from Wisconsin is president of the Mohican Nation Stockbridge Muncie Band, Shannon Holsey. Uh, Welcome to Native America Calling, President Holsey. 
Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So there's a trail that is uh, geographically removed from the tribe's current home in uh, Wisconsin. How is the Mohican Nation involved in that trail, and, and, and how was it developed? Well, currently we, we have some exciting endeavors. We um, constantly, because just to give you some background, Andy, our tribe obviously is not, If for your listeners, we're not originally from um, the state of Wisconsin. We are actually from out east. Um, our original ceded territories occupied New York, um, Massachusetts, uh, New Jersey, Vermont, and Pennsylvania. So we spent a considerable amount of time there before, through the Indian Relocation Act and removal, we came um, west and ended up in acquiring our land base currently today um, in Wisconsin. So currently we, we have several places that um, we call our own, one of which is uh, Papskinny Island, which is located in um, New York. And it is about a six-mile preserve um, that includes hiking trails. It and it's indigenous, and it's uh, a central theme. To, it is a tributation to our ceded territory, where we once lived, hunted, and cultivated those lands. And so we created um, walking trails um, with regards to um, signage and educational opportunities where um, people and visitors could learn about our Native American roots and um, understand the indigenous plants and things that occupied there where our Mohican people once occupied and thrived there. You know, there are teaching signs and estuaries and wetlands. Um, everything is very specific with regards to that space, you know, where there are hundreds of animals um, that call that preserve home, of course. And then, um, you know, where we constantly, um, it has an entrance to the city of Rensselaer, if anybody is familiar with that. Um, and, of course, it, it is, has the frontage of the Hudson River, river um, right from the, um, you know, place by which our people once occupied. But most recently, um, to your point about the land back acquisition, we just recently uh, reacquired a, what was called a Monument Mountain. It's an acquisition, acquisition program that the tribe participated in and we once habitated that conservation and resilience area, area through an endeavor called the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness Grant. And so through that endeavor, we were able to partner with allies throughout the state of Massachusetts um, to reacquire our, our ceded territory. And really why it's so significant is because um, it was never available. You know, this is the first time the property has been on the market for over 100 years. Um, the Stockbridge Muncie Nation received a grant of $2.6 million to purchase that land and reacquire it from our dispossession. And really, uh, what our primary goal is, is to establish a tribally driven conservation and forest management of those 351 acres of uh, woodlands um, to make sure that we include the not only its trust but also to make sure that our interest in preservation education and looking at those variety of habitats including like wildlife corridors endangered species our wetlands the mountains the woodlands all of those things that have and of course the sites of cultural significance to our tribe awesome all right and you guys had a hand in also changing the name of that mountain right we did. We absolutely right. did. It was um, it was promulgated. I have to give um, Secretary um, Halland a great deal of 
um, uh, credit also. But you know, we uh, that hiking trail in the trustees, it was it was uh, named uh, uh, Peace Waco. And so that means virtuous woman. So the tribe had a hand in being able to rename it before even a period of time. Um, this happened in 2021 before we even realized that how is that sort of a paradigm shift or a, ch a change of fate where we realized that, you know, after 100 years, that land would become available and we would have the opportunity to repurchase it or repossess it and call it our own once again. Okay. All right, and uh, that uh, the trail, you know, we were uh, we're talking about. Uh, how is this important to the Mohican Nation now? Um, you know, do you guys get a lot of uh, you know visitors going back and forth, uh, tribal members going back and forth, Wisconsin to Massachusetts to uh, you know have that reconnection uh, time? Absolutely. We um, have always made home uh, trips to our homeland, and of course, because we still have presence there, we have a tribal historic preservation office, office located in the state of New York. Um, it's all relatively within several hours uh, away from each other, and we still do Section 106 um, from repatriation um, to protecting and stewarding the land. So it has cultural significance. It has land stewarding requirements and responsibilities of our tribal nation. And then, of course, just to your point, the connection that we still have, um, because, you know, against all odds, against dispossession of our land, um, we're still there. We still have connection to it because our ancestors still exist there, even today. Okay. All right. And uh, beyond this trail, are there uh, other sites or places that the tribe would like to see uh, reclaimed? Uh, are there areas or, or other trails that you'd like to, um, you know, add back the historical uh, markers there? I think it should always be the goal. Mm -hmm. I think it serves two purposes. I think as uh, land stewards and also uh, the original occupants of those homelands, I think it is our res responsibility to make sure that that dispossession, it, we always look for ways to reclamation, but we always also look for ways to bring a 21st perspective to a lot of people that don't understand that uh, there is no such thing as the last of the Mohicans, that in spite of all those things that I described earlier, we're still here. You know, we are really getting back to a place of origin when it when it um, aligns with what that land back movement looks like. And it really requires us to like take a deep dive into our history while really looking towards the future and how we can make sure that it comes full circle and that um, not only that we have um, historical context, but we express our love for our people in the land that we once occupied. And what is the process like uh, for getting uh, buy-in from both tribal members and elected officials there? I can honestly say that it it, it, it is a complex endeavor. Mm -hmm. But to your point, it's always to uh, continue to foster and create relationships center, centered around those sort of integrated solutions by, to your point, uh, enlisting partners and changemakers and people from all those different respective areas and how we look at investing, you know, in tribal nations by, um, like, looking at those strategies in our own indigenous systems of thinking and um, recognizing that there is a need for that interconnectedness of of all things and that we approach the narrative from it's everybody's responsibility, um, not only from our nation's perspective of our homelands, but to each other, 
you know, and when you look at that resilient and regenerative, regenerative framework um, from start to finish, it really always is built around the origins of our home, homelands and how we can um, promulgate uh, allies to make sure that there is continuation of that stewarding and protection and, you know, access to those things that are still sacred to us today. Mm-hmm. And are there names that uh, should be remembered by the rest of us that are covered over by um, colonists? Um, well, I, I would say that I think it's just a re-education, and we have to um, put this in perspective, understanding that most people and their exposure to true and factual Native American history often doesn't even take place in primary school or even in high school. Oftentimes, it's taken place, it takes place in post-secondary settings. And so it's always a re-education. I know that my tribe takes a great deal of time and effort in instituting relationships, especially with land-based universities, especially out east, making sure that there is always that point of recognition and inflection and teachings, correct teachings at a university level. And and it's not enough to just proclaim acknowledgement of land. It's also we have to take it a step further and make sure that there's reclamation so that the things that are are, – you know, kinship, those kinship systems that exist and within our respective governance and the ceremonies and the spirituality that is associated with it are, are continu- there's a continuous spectrum of uh, promulgating those relationships and making sure that they're maintained and they continue into time and memorial. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, uh, President Holsley, for that. And um, we'll, you know, definitely keep an eye on the work that you guys are doing uh, in Wisconsin and uh, Massachusetts. So thanks so much for uh, joining again. Um, I'd like to go over to our guest now from Albuquerque here in New Mexico, uh, Moises Gonzalez. He is an associate dean at the University of New Mexico School of Architecture and Planning. He's Hanisido. Welcome back to Native America Calling, Moises. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah. I, I wanted to uh, bring you in to help us talk about the Comanche Trail. Um, g- give us a little bit of background, of course. Uh, what uh, What is the Comanche Trail? Like, where? What states are we talking about? It's pretty uh, well. It's basically a larger part of. Gosh, parts of Texas, large areas of, of southwestern Texas, um, you know, eastern New Mexico, down to uh, Chihuahua, uh, Coahuila, and uh, state uh, part of Mexico, uh, going up to southeastern Colorado. And the reason it's kind of important in terms of a, a national trail is because you have different segments that meet. Well, two national trails, because you know we talk about modern national trails, but there's the Santa Fe Trail that. Uh, comes down to uh, into uh, what was Pecos Pueblo and down through the Genisaro uh, settlement of San Miguel del Vado. And, of course, there was spur that came out through my community, which, uh, you know, was kind of goes back to that history of these buffer lands uh, that was spoken by uh, the, the professor from uh, Boston in that, uh, like, in my community was basically uh, kind of the crossroads of, of these sort of conflicts and trade and, um, and, and those kind of things. Um, and then what's important about the Comanche Trail is just in terms of, you know, uh, when the Comanche get the, uh, the horse and become one of the, you know, uh, an important equestrian 
uh, tribe, just you know, similar to the Utes and and, and other um, and other nations, is that you know the, the 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 amount of trade and the amount of goods that went, and at one point, you know, um, there had to be an alliance between the Spanish, the Pueblos, and the uh, uh, the Ute and the Comanche. Uh, to be able to trade, of course, the, the, what was allowed at that time was the, the legal trade of, of slaves. Um, but in this, we fast forward to like the modern infrastructure today, is that one thing, you know, a lot of the alignments, of, at least the one that comes down from I-25 in particular, uh, we could talk about the Mother Road, which is Route 66. So segments of the Comanche Trail actually touch around Tucumcari, they come in through uh, my community, Carnuela, which is Carnuela, which is uh, Tejeros Canyon, and so what I feel is important is that there's so much significant history between um, this trail that <clears throat> between uh, the Hickorias, the Kiowas, the um, <clears throat> early on the the Lipan Apache, the uh, the Kiowas, Henisado um, Pueblo communities, um, and and then you know fast forward today. <laughs> with some of the, you know, what's been talked about uh, 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 by some of the other guests is that, you know, in the next few years, in the year 2026, uh, Route 66, the Mother Road, will be celebrating its 100-year um, um, anniversary, so to speak, as the Mother Road of America, the United States. So there's uh, some of the good things that are happening uh, Happening is with um, the Park Service uh, uh, folks from the Park Service are really interested in diversifying the the the, the narratives, and so our community will be part of some oral histories, and as well as others about uh, talking about the use of these trails and how we used to our community actually when we had the trade alliance with the Comanche, we'd actually meet the uh, 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 we our men would leave the, the buffalo hunts in October and would come back in December, and in that time there would be trade with um, with the Comanches out in. Uh, out in uh, uh, in around what be present day Amarillo, Texas, which almost is pretty close to, again the Route 66 alignment. So I think what's important is uh, is you know understanding these trail networks and how they have been used today. I mean, parts of Route 66 along the Comanche Trail, fast forward today, uh, are what we celebrate as the car culture. We celebrate the neon lights, the neon signs. And what's left out is a lot of important aspects of these trail networks where the integration of trade, the integration of stories, the integration of, 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 of what's left out about uh, what's been spoken before outside of the popular discourse of you know, indigenous knowledge. Right. Right. And um, how it was used by uh, Europeans during the process of uh, colonization and, and moving tribes around. So how was uh, the Comanche trails, uh, you know, used um, in that way by by outsiders to, uh, you know, in, in warfare and stuff like that with uh, tribes? Well, that, I mean, it's interesting because you figure the original Comanche Trail was, uh, you know, kind of used as a path at times of war and at times of trade um, from the plains into New Mexico along the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, some of the passages in were around Taos. Some of them were the other one is around the, the Pecos, uh, the Pecos uh, uh, Pass near Santa Fe. And, of course, 
the Tejeras Canyon up east of Albuquerque. Um, and we look at in terms of the history of, the, you know, the forest removals, you know, is like if you look at the vast territory of parts of, you know, the vast territories of, or, or areas of indigenous lands coming from, you know, the Shoshone, the, uh, the, the, the Kiowa, the Comanche, the Hickory Apache, just like northeastern New Mexico, and how, you know, that whole territory, you know, that, the, you know, we look at the Texas Rangers and their involvement of removal of the Comanche, then, uh, you know, these same networks and roadways that were military networks became kind of like some of the, because, you know, given the terrain, there's limited spaces between certain types of canyons. So let's talk about like the Glorieta Pass coming from uh, Pecos Pueblo um, in, along the Pecos River, they're, they're tight uh, corridors. Um, and so, you know, even we even know the Glorieta Pass, there was a big battle between the, um, uh, the, the Confederates and the New Mexico and Colorado volunteers during the, uh, uh, during the Confederate War or, the, or, or during that war. But you don't really hear anything about, there's not a signage about the importance about how that was Hickorya land and the, and the contributions of the Hickorya. And, of course, there's the National Park of, of Pecos Pueblo, but it's almost written as from a erasure. But we need to right. diversify the voices. Got it. All right. So um, we are talking about retracing and reclaiming historical trails today. Um, you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. I'm Michael, and I used to smoke. I never used to think about breathing. Then my left lung collapsed, and I was diagnosed with COPD. Now I think about breathing all the time. I'm on an oxygen machine so I can breathe. I take medicine so I can breathe. My tip is, enjoy the breaths you don't have to think about. You don't know how long you'll have them. Smoking can cause COPD. You can quit. For free help, visit cdc.gov slash quit now. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You have it tuned to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. And there's still time to join our conversation on historic trails today. How does walking and hiking along trails made by your answers give you a different perspective on history and your community? Join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. I want to go back to uh, Moises Gonzalez here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Uh, so right before the uh, right before the break, you were mentioning, of course, the um, reclaiming some of this history, uh, making sure that, uh, you know, maybe trail markers and historic areas include um our indigenous history uh, w what kind of work would that take and and who would be doing some of this work maybe for a project like uh you know remembering or or, or celebrating 100 years of route 66 well i think um you know part of this uh what the park service is interested in doing actually with my community we're doing uh, we'll have some oral history set up with uh, some community members and of course uh, recently, uh, I was believed it was two, three weeks, Comanche Nation uh, did an outreach visit to New Mexico, and they spent a day out at uh, the San Diego Casino. And then, of course, there was a trip that went out to Pecos Pueblo and trying with conversations from San Miguel de Obado. And, uh, and there were some other uh, uh, leaders, of the, uh, uh, representatives of Pueblo communities, and talking about just even for that, you know, in terms of, 
you know, the Spanish Trail and how that was the part of the Comanche Trail or even part of the Route 66 is I think what's important is just getting these various collective communities, indigenous communities, and articulate, you know, these narratives and stories and how could they be, you know, through educational materials. I mean, we have a lot of opportunity because we can all recognize that there's just a lacking of uh, these these trails in terms of in, in in terms of the knowledge being translated back to communities. So I think this process of communities being active in the uh, the the process of, of of the planning and the celebrating these roads as they want to, you know, uh, at least you know in terms of how they're designated uh, from the Park Service because we have several. If you look at New Mexico, we have the Comanche Highway, we have the old Pecos Trail, we have the old Spanish Trail, and then we have the Camino Real, right? And those all have very, very uh, complex histories amongst a lot of indigenous communities. And I think that's it, is I think we need to have um, part of this uh, reawakening uh, with uh, and, 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 and communication about what how these road systems evolved in a true recognition of how some of these roadways and these infrastructures and connection and cultural uh, lifeways were created and the people and honor the com- indigenous communities that, 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 that uh, created them. Right. And in terms of, uh, you know, honoring uh, indigenous communities, you know, what, what should folks keep in mind when kind of balancing, you know, some of these painful pasts with trail, trail making and uh, celebrating anniversaries? I know, like, um, you know, I, I, I think there had been a lot of uh, discussion about uh, the long walk and, yeah. you know, retracing that. And, you know, Navajo Nation is completely like split and, and probably won't agree on uh, anything in, in the, yeah. uh, uh, you know, coming years about the long walk because it's uh, very painful. How would you balance, you know, that? I think it's uh, very much in uh, uh, being, you know, for, for, you know, at least for because these are governmental Park Service trail designations, uh, and of course, everybody, a lot of communities share different comp- components of that. I mean, uh, it's interesting that you know, if you look at Laguna, they're the Route 66 uh, casino and hotel, and uh, is, is located along 66. And so, there's part of an economic development aspect of it, but then there's also these painful histories. And I think just in terms of you know um, c- consultation with each indigenous community, I mean, because uh, just talking with the folks that were here from Comanche Nation, it's it's be a, a different narrative than you know than maybe Pecos Pueblo along um, uh, along uh, along the uh, that part of the trail. So you know, given Route 66, especially through Carnwen, um definitely the you know the long walk that we know went through the creek and there's just uh, through the corridor there. So there's these these layers of complex history and there's trauma there. So I think. Um, I think just keeping the dialogue and the, uh, the communication, I think, would be interesting. And I, I don't know if this is going to happen in the uh, in, in the uh, 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 the uh, the Dinette project. Is you know uh, interesting of all the, how the youths move through that land. And I read a book. I don't know if you ever read it. It's called um, by uh, Ned Blackhawk, "Violence Over the Land," which gives a, uh, a youth perspective in New Mexico history. And I think all these communities providing different narratives would enrich these the understanding of these trails a lot more right right 
All right. Well, thank you so much for that. Um, I'd like to bring in uh, another guest we have with us. Uh, joining from Silver Spring, Maryland, uh, we have Kevin Bell. He's the project manager for the Great American Rail Trail at Rails to Trails Conservancy. Welcome to Native America Calling, Kevin. Thanks for having me, Andy. Yeah, so uh, we're talking about relationships uh, between uh, folks who are trail building and tribes. Uh, what is the relationship like uh, with uh, tribes and folks like yourself at the uh, Great American Rail Trail? Yeah, thank you again for having me. So at Rails to Trails Conservancy, we are working on a project to create a national vision for a cross-country multi-use trail between Washington, D.C. and Washington State. It's already about over halfway done with over 2,000 miles built on the ground. But a major factor of what we're working on certainly is going through historic and current extents of native lands. And any time a trail is projected to potentially go through a native land, it is always led by the tribes. That is what we are here for, is helping to elevate the local and tribal um, interests in trails, um, walking and biking, especially as it goes through historic um, tribal trails. Okay. All right. And what uh, trail, uh, what, what tribes already has uh, the Conservancy worked with? Yeah. So we've got a few tribes that we're working closely with, including right now the Northern Cheyenne, whose reservation land is in Montana, but their history, and they welcomed me onto their reservation a few years ago to talk about this was that they had been forcibly relocated towards Oklahoma, tried to go back home, and got um, imprisoned in Fort Robinson, Nebraska. So they are rebranding from what they had called their breakout committee to really the Northern Cheyenne Journey Home Committee. And that is um, folks focusing on the, the story that happened and how it impacts today and how we can all heal from that. And I say we all very intentionally because I was impressed in our conversations how the folks I met there, including Jerry and Major Robinson and Vincent White Crane and his sister Eva Foote, had talked about the trail that they're working on, a healing trail for Northern Cheyenne folks, certainly first and foremost, but also for non-Native folks, for white settlers over time as a place to learn what happened and come to a general healing about that. So. This trail will be a few miles that goes from the fort to a point of remembrance. And a major conversation we had with them was a desire to not have this trail be something that people go through really fast, that this is a place where if somebody is visiting, this is a contemplative trail, this is for slow travel. And we were very happy to work with them on that as being part of this cross-country vision. Okay. And uh, what... Um... You know, rails to trails. I mean, how many we're talking about railroads, um, you know, how how did so many railroads get to be uh, placed on some of these historic native trails? Yeah, so certainly America has a history of building our infrastructure historically without regard to physical or cultural resources. And we know that that's been damaging to so many communities, including tribes. And I think it's meaningful that we've got this opportunity to create multi-use and recreational trails to reclaim that heritage and those ancestral lands for people to use today and to remember the past as well. 
Okay. And how many different ways are, are folks using these trails? I, you mentioned just a while ago, like you don't want folks to go very fast through one trail. Um, what are folks doing on these trails? Yeah, so we our vision is a multi-use trail, so walking, biking, riding horses, things that are non-motorized generally. And the trail like this that I talked about, the healing trail, but other trails as well really gives people that reason to slow down and see the landscape at the, the pace of human travel, where we don't see that on a car like Moises was mentioning on Route 66. I think this trail gives us that opportunity to interpret some of the stories from the perspective of, of Native folks leading the way entirely um, so people know what it is, why it's so meaningful where they are. Okay. And what does the work look like uh, to um, turn a railroad back into a trail? Yeah, we've been around since 1986 as Rails to Trails Conservancy with that vision. And it, it takes a while. Trail building is not an, an easy and quick process. But when a railroad is no longer viable in service and a local community wants to take this on, um, they'll find a way to invest in reacquiring that corridor and um, picking up the old rail corridor, putting in whatever surfacing they'd like that is valuable towards the community. And um, really, it's an, certainly an a opportunity to bring people onto the trail that is for local folks and visitors as well. And that can also help create an economic opportunity for people who are traveling through. We know native tourism is certainly a, a burgeoning industry. We'll actually be at the American Indian Tourism Conference in Choctaw Nation in October, kind of giving that big technical assistance support to tribes who are interested in doing this more. Okay. And um, w what kind of work is going on right now with uh, the project uh, you are managing? Yeah, so outside of the Northern Cheyenne Group, who is still working on building that trail, we've also got a great partnership with several tribes on the Olympic Peninsula along the Olympic Discovery Trail. We were just out on Janestown Sklalem land in um, June with our board of directors and other folks that actually just worked on a multi-jurisdictional grant application through the U.S. Department of Transportation to help fill the gaps that exist in the Olympic Discovery Trail. And that was several tribes partnering on that with the counties and the state, including the Jamestown Sklalem tribe and the Suquamish and the Kuliute. And each of those tribes are leading the efforts to build trails. We got to talk to the um, chairman of the tribe, Jamestown Sklalem, that's Ron Allen, and he likes to talk about how the trail is an economic development driver. It goes right past the tribal cultural center and really gives people a, a look at what it means to be Jamestown Scholem in a modern day. Oh, got it. All right. And um, uh, w we kind of went into this a little bit, but um, how important are uh, these trails, uh, just having them available, having them, um, you know, uh, 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 researched and uh, you know, connecting stories to them. H how important are these for uh, maybe non-Native visitors who are coming through? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think looking back at the example on um, in Nebraska with the Northern Cheyenne tribe folks, I think there's a lot of deep shame amongst several of the settlers there in terms of the past. And what this kind of a trail does is allows people to to reflect on 
whatever involvement our ancestors have had in these stories and really um, learn about what that has done over time and what that means today and allows us to kind of understand that experience a little bit better and be able to move forward in working with folks who are here today. Got it. I want to go back to uh, Wisconsin to uh, President Shannon Holsey of the Mohican Nation Stockbridge Muncie Band. Um, Shannon, uh, how important is uh, reclamation here? Thank you for that question, Andy. Um, It's significantly important to our uh, tribal nations, as is expressed today by all nations. You know, our our approach really ensures a resilient and regenerative um, framework from start to finish, as we talked about, around built around the origins of our homelands and being able to tell our story. You know, when you look at the reclaiming of our original homeland, it's just a, a part of a bigger movement that was expressed here today in various um, ways. And so with us, with the return of our land, um, we're going to be able to not only reclaim our cultural ties and practices, we're really not trying to, in the Western way or the Western colonial way of thinking about it, reclaim land ownership. It's so much broader than that. We're really, what we're attempting to do is try to reclaim our ways of being, which wasn't based on monetary money. It was more a reclamation, as I talked about, of our kinship systems, how we govern and our exposure to educate the world about our sovereignty and looking at our ceremony and spirituality. And then, of course, for us, because we were some of our first contact, you know, um, our reclamation and, and our language and our culture. Also, importantly enough, to our food sources, you know, one of the first things we'll be doing, Andy, is doing an environmental assessment to see what that is, because a part of this actually is, is uh, climate change adaptation and resiliency, because that's a huge part of it, looking at the wetlands and looking at floodplains and looking at all those things, because it all matters, but also a reclamation of our original food systems our medicinal systems, and all of those things are fundamentally based on our relationship to the land. All right. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. And uh, I'd like to thank our other guests we had on today, uh, Moises Gonzalez, Dr. Wade Campbell, and uh, Kevin Bell. That is uh, the end of the show today. And uh, join us tomorrow for a discussion about recent land back initiatives in Native America. I'm Andy Murphy. Do you want to start, manage, or grow your small business? The U.S. Small Business Administration can help. If I had not known about the SBA, I would still be a local business. SBA provides you with experts. It provides you with resources. And whenever you have a question, SBA will be there to help you grow your business. For your small business needs, go to sba.gov start. All SBA programs and services are extended to the public on a non-discriminatory basis. Support provided by Amerind. Amerind is 100% tribally owned and partners with tribes and their businesses to provide affordable commercial insurance coverage, protect tribal sovereignty, and strengthen Native American communities by helping to keep dollars in Indian country. Information about property, liability, commercial auto, and workers' comp available at amerind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D dot com.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.